You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Tom Oliphant, a teacher and industrial designer. In this episode, we explore the world of technology and its use in teaching and learning. Tom reflects on his early career as an industrial designer, developing prototypes for furniture, electrical appliances and other objects before further study and his transition into teaching. Tom also reflects on the advances in technology over the past 20 or so years and how these allow ideas to become reality across industries and also for students and teachers within schools. We explore project-based approaches to teaching and learning and some of the engaging ways to incorporate digital technologies into the classroom, such as the use of robotics and drones. Tom shares stories of his students' robot bugs and other mechanical critters that formed part of a cross-curriculum art installation, incorporating subjects like science, technology, engineering, maths, English and creative arts. Along the way, we also find out about the more human elements, such as students communicating, collaborating, critically thinking managing projects and generally being creative. Tom offers insights into virtual environments which allow students to engage with the programming and other valuable technical aspects without the cost of physical robots or other equipment. We find out about some of the potential opportunities presented by the emerging and often abstract concept of Web3 the idea of citizens owning their own data and identity, and how this might potentially fit in with schools and education in areas such as certifications, micro-credentials, and blockchain technology. Tom encourages his students to engage with new and emerging technology to see its value and purpose and how it might relate to their own lives as they prepare for an ever-emerging future. Here's my conversation with Tom Oliphant. So, hi Tom, good to see you. Yeah, likewise. Um, So I'm interested to know more about your background and how we got here. Uh, I understand that you're a teacher, you've got an expertise in technology, robotics, that sort of thing. You really like um, project-based learning or approaches. Um, Yep. So... Tell us, tell us a little bit more about, well, or take us back, take us back to a previous era. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I guess, uh, funnily enough, where I'm teaching now um, in the in the Adelaide Hills in South Australia, I was actually born about um, about 500 metres up the road in the in the local hospital um, many years ago. So kind of travelled around and ended back up here again um, where it all began. But, yeah, I mean, to give a bit of background into myself, um, I come from a family um, where I've got half of the family actually uh, teachers and the other half of the family um, are kind of in the in the arts, architects and designers and so forth. So um, my background is kind of a bit of a blend of, of those two influences, I guess. So... Um, at school, I had a, or even when I was younger, I was always interested in in tinkering and building and, and doing all those sorts of things. Um, high school, I actually had a real passion for design, but the school I went to actually didn't even offer design or technical studies at high school. So I actually ended up convincing the uh, the year 12 teacher to let me do design under what what used to be called PES art um, so did like a, a visual arts design course, um, which is kind of like the old SACE, I guess, going back, you know, 20 odd years ago. So, um, yeah, and then that kind of kickstarted, I guess, or allowed me to, you know, explore a little bit more in, um, in design, particularly product design. Um, so when I finished university, sorry, when I finished school and went to university, I did a bachelor of industrial design. So that was really focusing around product design and engineering, uh, concepts. And really loved that. Um, but what I found when I finished the course was just there weren't enough jobs in Adelaide at the time 
Um, it was a, a career path where I kind of needed to pack up and move somewhere else um, in the world or interstate. And, you know, I would have only kind of really early 20s at that stage uh, and just wasn't ready for it. So I ended up sort of hanging around, um, doing a bit of freelance work for a bit, did get into graphic design for a while, um, but then actually ended up pointing me down a pathway of doing marketing and and uh, started a marketing management degree. So I was doing my marketing management degree. I was about to go into my final year, and that's when the, the GFC hit. So when the GFC hit, um, I did have friends that were in the field and, you know, companies were contracting their workforce and people were losing jobs and kind of made me reflect a little bit on job security at the time. And I kind of always had in the back of my mind to be a teacher, but because both my parents were teachers, I was like, oh, I don't want to do the same as them. I want to kind of do something a little bit different. Um, but, yeah, sat down with mum for a coffee and she's like, well, why don't you be a tech teacher? So I thought, you know, that makes some sense. Um, so I looked into it and basically went into my, um, you know, working for a big company at the time and said, look, you know, I'm going to resign and and not pursue my pathways down the marketing management. I'm going to become a teacher. And they said, well, you know, two weeks notice. And I said, well, no, my first, my first course is actually tomorrow. So um, finished up and then kicked off the career as a teacher back to uni life, uh, which was, you know, after being out of uni for probably, you know, five or so years, it was actually quite cool to get back to uni life again for just did a master's of education for 18 months. Um, and then the first opportunity I got to get into a classroom um, as part of my teaching placement, which I think is such an important part of doing a teaching degree, uh, I just went, yeah, you know, this is this is absolutely for me and something that I really love doing. So, um, I've only been teaching for about 12 or 13 years um, since I sort of finished that course. And, yeah, so when I finished that degree, I actually was in the government system for about seven years. Um, it was an interesting situation for me. I joined a school in a permanent position, but it was in a tech department where the two previous technology teachers had resigned. So I was basically given a, a tech department with no curriculum, um, no supporting documentation or anything like that, um, and and basically had to build it all up from scratch. So for a you know an early career teacher, it was a little bit daunting, um, but I do believe that that kind of helped me um, helped me a little bit more with kind of where I've gotten to now. Uh, you know, being kind of thrown in the deep end a bit there and needing to um, develop the curriculum and, and so forth. So from there I went to a kind of a, well, the way that the department system works, I guess, is when a leadership position comes up back then, it was kind of your job is also up. Um, so I actually ended up going to kind of a prestigious uh, independent school for about five years. Um, which was, you know, a completely other end of the spectrum, which was kind of good to see as well. Um, you know, a lot of the things that were a challenge in a department school became not a challenge in an independent school, but I did appreciate seeing both both sides um, and then was there for about five years and then I um, moved to a, an independent school in the Adelaide Hills, St John's Grammar, um, which is a smaller school, and yeah, and then here I am, absolutely loving it. So that is kind of a bit of a snapshot of where it all began and how I became a teacher. But I quite often reflect on that pathway or that journey. And I think people can sit back and say, oh, you know, I, I changed my mind so many times. I, I never got on the right path. Um, but I kind of look back and reflect on that and kind of go, well, like, all of those little experiences actually contribute to sort of teacher I am today um, and I do teach enterprise and teach uh, design and technology um, and advanced technologies and having that marketing product design background uh, pigeonholes in really nicely to how I sort of view um, design and technology education. So I take all of that on board and, and kind of uh, thankful for that journey and it's kind of helped me, I guess, uh, get to where I am today. So how how does it compare? Like w thinking back to the the products and um other 
uh, the kind of projects that you were working on when you were at high school were they because yep. we didn't hear about them what are, what sort of things were you building and then how do they compare to what students are building like now yeah look um I was uh, basically at the time when I did the course, uh, mine was sort of very conceptual sort of stuff. So I was making more prototypes of um, of chairs and furniture and things like that because that was sort of a, some of the influences I had from um, from my mother that was right into design and art, and I was exposed to a lot of those, um, you know, the artists and designers and that kind of influence the way that I viewed design. Um, but I never had access to technical woodwork skills or metalwork skills or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I did have friends that kind of came and, you know, it was the traditional woodwork or metalwork pencil case and, and those sort of things, those traditional wood and metalwork projects, which even to today I still see those um, floating around in schools. So, you know, not much when you kind of reflect back on, you know, almost 30 years of education and and some of that stuff is still uh, going through. There's, I know there's big arguments for, um, you know, some of the advantages, but it does also make me reflect on 30 years of education, like how much are we actually moving forward and in terms of technology and whatnot and advancement there. So Maybe those, um, maybe those little um, wooden pencil cases are a design classic. Yeah, yeah, they would be now. They'd always be an antique, I reckon. <laughs> so how do they – how does all that – Compare to what you were doing in industry. What sort of what sort of products or or things were you designing when you were working in the field? Yeah, look, I mean, a lot of it was, um, I guess, appliances and things like that. So a lot of it was electrical appliance type design, which was was kind of limited, I guess. By um, I mean, that was twenty years ago. So obviously, you think now, like in terms of the accessibility you know, uh, to anyone in the world now from a digital sense. Like back then we only just had the first version of the internet, um, which was really just to access information. So in terms of what you design was quite restricted by, I guess, geographically, the companies that were in South Australia at the time and what you could do, which was, um, yeah, a lot of appliance-like stuff. But when I kind of reflect on it now, I think coming out of that career uh, in today's world, I think there's so many more opportunities um, in terms of the uh, advanced manufacturing and access to those sorts of things and um, access to companies all around the world. And you've got all these platforms now where you can, you know, act as a freelancer and be able to, you know, work anywhere in the world, really. Um, so that that whole thing has really changed the dynamic in terms of what you can do. Um, and I think also that access to the advanced technologies allows you to create objects a lot easier and a lot quicker. Um, you know, 3D printing, you can do a prototype in a matter of hours and a one-off where 20-odd years ago you might have had to do a run of a 1,000 to make it economical. Um, so a lot of those sort of ideas and concepts were kind of, you know, kept aside. So I think the way that that's changed um, has allowed a lot of designers to really uh, put their ideas into reality, which is kind of what I tell the students as well. You know, it's a un- unique opportunity for you to um, to have a have a concept which is left field as it could be, but actually put it into reality. You know, we didn't have these opportunities twenty years ago. Um, yeah. So when just thinking of your um, educational transition into the education field i guess because you had a, a background in within your family you kind of knew the the kind of culture if that's the word of what being yep. a teacher is but what what sort of things did you discover or learn when you were when you went back to university to study like in terms of becoming a teacher was it everything yeah, you always thought it would be or you know yeah i think so um I mean, for me, I kind of had the passion for design, um, but I guess it was a lot more of an emphasis on like the student relationship side for me going through university, which, you know, I'll never forget my first, um, when I did one of my first placements and the um, mentor teacher I had said, look, the best advice I can give you is to don't worry about any of the content in the first lesson, like spend the first half an hour just getting to know the kids. Um, and I've kind of taken that on board 
and it makes such a difference, like putting that energy into the students. And I did find that, um, yeah, like going doing that course and going through, um, you know, in terms of the placements and learning about um, a lot of the other aspects of being a teacher, having that um, that mindset, I guess, of you know, supporting and uh, making these young uh, adults feel safe and and having a really inclusive classroom goes a long way and is sometimes more important than what the actual content is. Like if you get that part right, then it feels like the content will kind of um, will slip into place. So that's probably the one thing I noticed the most about transitioning from, um, you know, I guess a bit of a corporate world into uh, education. But the other thing I think is just... Uh, Students are, are fun and um, and almost no two days are the same either. You know, they're always – everything's changing, uh, different dynamics, um, different students. You know, you're always kept on your toes where sometimes the corporate world can be very just, you know, the grind like day after day, you know, can become quite the same. So that's probably the other thing I did find and I kind of really enjoyed that, to be honest. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. I'm interested in what your day-to-day experience might be in and what sort of technology you use with the students in the classroom, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I mean, a bit of the background in the types of subjects that I teach. So I teach... Um, design and technology, digital technologies, and also enterprise subjects. So um, I, I also have a, a real passion for technology and kind of always keeping my finger on the pulse in terms of new technologies that are coming out. I think that is an advantage of being a design and technology teacher, I think, is um, with having a lot of project-based learning is that you can adapt the courses to new technologies Um for me, there's been a, a real emphasis on uh, like robotics and automation and drones over the last few years. Um, I kind of identified these as areas that students will need to learn a little bit more about um, and they're coming more and more prominent uh, in our lives and we kind of, you know, whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, um, that's to be decided, but that it's also formed a good discussion with the students around um, robotics and automation and, you know, what parts of our lives is this going to improve, but, you know, what parts of our lives is this also going to, um, you know, hamper or, oh, what's the word, make not as good, <laughs> you know, like impact our lives in a way, I guess. Um, so that, you know, it is interesting for the kids. Yeah, it's a lot, um, a lot of the technology is a bit that way, just, to, you know, it's not all good. It's kind of got yeah, other, that's right. other issues that come with it. Yeah, um, so I teach uh, robotics from Year 7 through to Year 12 um, and also incorporate drone technologies as well. Um, I find this as a really engaging way to get students to learn a little bit more about um, about programming and digital technologies. Um, what I've found is having a tangible object that can move around the room, um, the, you know, from some student inputs, the students get really excited um, and engaged with that. So, um, Why started is that? off doing some. What's going on then? Why are they engaged with it? Yeah, I think it's. I think it's just a thing. Like, and I was sort of speaking to someone about this the other day. Like with robotics, like it's robotics, or is it just things that move? Like it's a thing that moves, and kind of really stripping it all the way back, and kind of let's forget about the, the word robotics and the word automation and let's just talk about there's this thing that moves and what can we apply this thing that moves to and it kind of opened up the door to, I guess, a range of other projects moving away from just digital technologies, you know, like, um, you know, we did a, a project with visual arts, for example, where we had these robots or things that move and um, what the students did is they created these really intricate cardboard um, exoskeletons almost that went over the top of the robots and then painted them all these bright colours and they ended up being these little bugs and critters that would move around. Um, But again, the students seeing that, you know, the work that they do 
from a programming perspective and the output is this little bug or critter that's kind of moving around the room, um, I think seeing and touching uh, something seems to engage them a little more, um, which would probably be the same for a lot of subjects. Like, you know, you go talk about science, for example, you know, science, they can do the theory work, but when they're kind of getting their hands on, um, you know, with a science prac or something like that, that's when they really get sort of pulled in um, to what you're doing. So it might be the same as that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a former science teacher, so I kind of can yep. relate to that. I guess it's that tangible, visceral um, hands-on kind of uh, approach, and then for some, for most students, they, if they've if they've gone and designed something, it's something that they've thought of first, and then they've maybe done the programming, and then to have it operating in the world can be a a kind of I can see your lights. Uh, it's not like an automated light or something, is it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and and I guess that's where the drones kind of came from because it, it has the robots and I kind of link it into mass. You've got the robots working in like almost on an X and Y coordinate in a, in a sense, they're working in a two dimensional space on the, on the ground in terms of where they move. So drones kind of added another layer go, well, we're going to work in three dimensions now. So we're going to move your X and Y, but obviously a drone can go up and down. So that then becomes your Z axis as such. So that just added another layer on top of um, of you know students having access to something that that moves around. So now they've got this thing that not only moves forward and backwards, but it's also up and above them and next to them and so forth. So that was just in a whole other level of engagement um, there for students. I started exploring drones when I first started teaching, probably you know thirteen years ago, and the technology has come a long way, um, but also the affordabilities come a long way as well um you know for a hundred odd dollars you can get a drone these days um which are the teaching aid is pretty affordable um in terms of i think the the learning outcomes you get from that so um yeah so having these things i guess and it kind of i step it up you know you're doing some programming and you might get this little object to move around on your pro- on your computer screen and then you're doing a robot and it gets to move, same thing, but it moves around on the ground. And then you get a drone, same thing, but now it's going up and down in the air as well. So um, kind of building that up, uh, you can see the more and more that students kind of get hooked in and engage with their learning. So, And then yeah. what are they, like, is the emphasis on the programming aspect or is it on the, like with the creative arts, that it's kind of led to a performance piece almost? And so how do you, what are the... What's the scope maybe of the learning outcomes or do yeah, they look, vary? The, um, going back to that project that I mentioned before where we had students doing these little critters, that was actually part of a bigger installation which we called a robot garden. And the robot garden was a combination between science, visual arts and digital technologies and um, just kind of trying to Obviously, you know, you get your traditional STEM subjects, but I'm a big fan of the arts and I think it does have a place. So um, we kind of brought them into um, into the project as well. And we also got a, um, a prominent sort of South Australian artist to also come in um, as part of the project and kind of talk from that, um, that artistic side and particularly kinetic art and things like that. So... To answer your question, I mean, we kind of would have different aspects of the project. There would be some that would have an emphasis on um, on the programming components. There would be an emphasis on, like, the engineering and the building of the robots. But that was influenced by science who were doing a project on biomimicry, and the um, they kind of did a research assignment, which they then gave to the digital technology students on how certain things move, so whether it's a bug or an elephant or whatnot, um, and then they needed to create these robotic objects that would move like an elephant or move like a little critter on the ground. And then visual arts were the ones that kind of came in and, and added all the really nice, beautiful colours and cardboard exoskeletons and all, all that sort of stuff. We each assessed that um, independently like in terms of the learning areas. Um, as part of the big project, but it was really for me about exposing students to large collaborative projects um, where you're needing to work with teams in other areas. So, 
very much trying to replicate what things might be like in the real world um, as often as that saying kind of thrown out. But, you know, if you go into the real world, you you are kind of collaborating with people in other departments that might not know what you're doing. So you need to make that information really clear, which is where that biomimicry report came to the digital technology students. Um, and so I guess the, the value I sort of saw in this that students taking away is working across classes. We also had it across year levels. So the digital guys were year 10, the arts were year seven, the science were year nine. So we didn't, we just broke down those walls for year levels as well. Like there isn't any reason why they can't all kind of share and work together. So, um, it was one of those things where we had absolutely no idea how it was going to turn out, whether it was going to be a failure or whether it was going to succeed. Um, but at the same time, I was fortunate to have a group of teachers that were happy to just dive in and see see what happens, um, which is a bit of my approach as well, I guess, uh, with a lot of what I do is review a lot of my curriculum each year um, and or at least every two years get a lot of feedback from students in terms of what they enjoyed and did not enjoy and then actually implementing those changes and, and seeing how it can be improved. So happy to kind of take some risks and uh, and let the students know that, hey, look, I'm doing this for the first time. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but um, let's all go on this journey together and, and we'll work it out along the way. Um, and at the end, have a big chat about what was successful and what was not. So, again, that I kind of find um, allows the students to also realise that, hey, you know, if Mr Oliphant is kind of trying something new and he's happy for things to fail, um, and and isn't you know a hundred percent confident in what he's doing. Maybe I can kind of also do the same thing with my own learning. You know, not everyone's perfect and knows that everything's going to work out squeaky clean. Um, that you know, even teachers do try things and sometimes they don't work. So, so did all the teachers that were involved? Did they all get back together and um, have a, a bit of a a reflection, a group reflection, that type of thing? Yeah, we did. Yep, we all got back together um, and kind of reflected on on the whole process. Um, and you know, I think obviously one of the biggest problems trying to run, or you know, issues trying to run a project like this is just trying to get all the timetables lined up. But we kind of just said, "Well, let's ignore that. Like, let's kind of just teach within our areas and have some overlaps when we can." Um, and you know not be restricted by the timetable as such. And that allowed us to just kind of flow. We had to do a bit of travelling between classrooms from time to time. But, um, yeah, I think we all agreed that it was a really good project to run, um, that running across those three uh, subject areas, but bringing in the arts was really valuable. Um, everyone agreed with that. Um, the gonna... big question that came up was really around, like, assessment, like how do we, how are we going to assess this? Um it was interesting, you know, like science would be the ones that were like really wanted to know about the assessment. You know, the science teachers were like, well, how are we going to assess this? The arts were like, yeah, this is all good, you know, we'll, we'll kind of just we'll work it out. And well, then, there's, more you know, than, take... there's more than one correct answer with some of those arts subjects. However, yeah. science can does have its precision sometimes. Um, yeah. It's funny on a certain level that, and I can well imagine that, you know, all the different, the diversity of concerns. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it kind of was a bit of a reflection of the subject areas in a way, but um, but I guess once we kind of worked that out, like how we can assess um, and 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 nail that down, I think it all kind of ran smoothly after that. So that was um, – and then the reporting, obviously the reporting sides and so forth. But I think everyone saw like, you know, besides all of those little things, like the, the ultimate value from the project itself – um, and the enjoyment that the students got out of it, um, and particularly like you know the junior primary schools coming around and checking this stuff out, and you know it was a bit of a, a wow factor. But it also I think opened teachers' eyes to um, robotics, and that it doesn't have to be this industrial, boring, grey type subject. It can be um, as lively as you want it to be. So from there, there's been some other examples where it's. Um, you know, like English have used the robots to put little characters and kind of had, you know, little scenes or stories where the robots will be, you know, um, Little Red Riding Hood or something like that. You know, the little Red Riding Hood robot 
drives around the big bad wolf, you know, things like that. Um, so just sort of showing that, yeah, there are many ways to think about how you can incorporate robotics or automation. Um, I guess the other important thing for me was that doing it in a project like that actually exposed a broader gender um, group in terms of, uh, I guess, males and females or girls in STEM and whatnot um, to exposure to STEM type subjects um, that can some for most teachers would understand what that acronym is but for the people who aren't aware what is yep. STEM you speak of and then what role does the A for arts have in that yeah so STEM is science technology engineering and maths um, and then you may also hear STEAM which is science technology engineering art and math um there's probably a hundred other different acronyms that kind of evolved over over the years uh there is an argument that it shouldn't really be pigeonholed into just those subjects and then i can understand why a lot of other subject areas are going well what about us like you know it's that devaluing languages or um you know physical education or we're just as important um so i think you know that's where we kind of dragged in the arts there and uh, kind of gave them an opportunity to be part of it. Um, and then, you know, future projects, I would absolutely look at trying to just incorporate a whole range of subject areas. So maybe stepping away from STEM and just more being, you know, cross-curricular collaborative projects, I guess, and kind of going down that pathway. And then what about the, the gender kind of diversity across these sort of subjects? I mean, maybe yeah. at school as well as in the field even. Um. I mean, you will notice a a lack of uh, females in STEM pathways post-school. I guess that is why there's such a driver at the moment to expose um, more girls to STEM. Uh, and the advantage of running a project like that is that, you know, science is a compulsory subject, uh, so you're getting a good uh, gender diversity there. You do get a lot of females that do choose visual arts, but probably not as many choosing design and technology subjects. So, which is kind of why I want to do projects that kind of maybe break out from design and technology and digital technology and get access to, you know, other subject areas and, and a, you know, more diverse gender groups. Um, and, yeah, that seems to be working uh, or, you know, a nice way to sort of tap into that. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I'm wondering, you've outlined some really practical uh, uses for technology in learning and teaching. What what is it about all this technology? Like, why why is it valuable? Why would why why do you enjoy working with it? And what are the students getting out of it? What where's it headed even? What's the point? <laughs> yeah, look, um, good question. I mean, what I, I open a lot of my classes with um, with students, I kind of say, well, why are we why are we learning about you know robotics and drones and programming and AI and all this sort of stuff? Um, you know, where's the relevance? Why do you guys need to know it? And I kind of go, okay, look, you know, you're in year seven now. Um, you know, you've got you know, sort of four or five years till you finish school, and then you've probably got another three years of tertiary education, um, you know, whether you're going down a, you know, a cert pathway through TAFE or, you know, university degree or whatever that be. But by the time you're actually out in the workforce, you're probably looking at, um, you know, eight to ten years from now. And then if you look at the acceleration that COVID has had, and a lot sort of say that, you know, COVID sort of accelerated the digital landscape by about five years. So we throw that into the mix and you think, you know, 10, 15 years ahead is where we're going to be when we finish school and we're actually finally into the workforce. So what's the world going to look like then? Um, you know, it's going to look a lot different to what it does now. When you consider that going backwards 10 years was when the iPad was first invented. So... The iPad first rolled out 10 years ago and we're here and the world has changed a lot and it's going to look a lot different um, in 10 years from now. So 
when I kind of talk about that, um, kids go, okay, this is kind of making some sense now. And I kind of say, look, I don't even, I don't even mind if you don't pick up robotics next year. But if you walk away and go, I've had some exposure to um, new and emerging technologies uh, that can be applied to any career pathway, really. Like, you know, if you want to be a doctor, look, there's robots out there now um, doing surgery. You know, if you want to be, you know, any other, an accountant, you're going to need access to, you know, a lot of it is online and software these days. So you kind of pluck out some of these um, examples of their career pathways and everyone is going to be exposed to these technologies in some way. So that is why we're learning a little bit about it now. Um, so that is really, I guess, the why I do what I do is um, is just trying to expose kids to what the future might look like. Um, and even if it's just a small little snapshot for them and they can take that away, even if they go off on another, another pathway at school, um, I guess having some exposure to that is absolutely going to help. And then what about the teachers, the other teachers? Are they, you know, a little bit shy or they're kind of – it's too much work or it's kind of good for a, a standalone project, but, you know, it's a bit clunky to incorporate. What's the general yeah. sense? Um, you do need, like, there's no denying you do need a, a champion teacher to kind of drive this. Um, you know, it can be um, it can be daunting, but it, I think you're sort of a leading by doing sort of things, you know, like, doing a project like I explained before um, and bringing in some teachers that might not normally do something like that but seeing, hey, it wasn't um, as hard as we thought and the kids really loved it, you know, maybe I'll try something like this again. So um, I am completely aware that, you know, it isn't everyone's cup of tea but I think it's, if you can expose yourself to a little bit, um, it's going to help. But even in saying that, you know, look at, Look at where we've all come from in the last three years, you know, in terms of, you know, if I went to some teachers three years or four years ago and said, right, we're going to, um, we're all going to be using these, you know, uh, Zoom platforms, we're going to, all our meetings are going to be virtual, you know, all we're going to run these virtual classrooms, you're going to be doing this hybrid learning, everyone be pulling their hair out and lots of people did, but we kind of all managed to adapt um, over those over that time to to quite a large sort of technological change um, and you know some a lot of teachers did kind of jump on board with that so the hope is that you know a lot of the other technologies that they kind of realize that there's a similar sort of um, uh, opportunity there in terms of of learning and where we can take students and also ourselves in terms of professional development but there's no denying that in the future there are going to be some big changes in in the way that we do things in everyday life and um, and we kind of need to keep up to speed with that. So, yeah. How do you know whether it's, you know, if you, if you go down a certain pathway, whether the technology's kind of worth pursuing? Maybe it's a dud or maybe it's a yep. kind of flash in the pan and you've spent all this Absolutely. time and money. How do you know or yep. how do you... No, I totally agree. And I, I, one thing I don't like to do is knee-jerk into a new technology, like whatever the new buzzword is or the new tech is. Like it happens quite a bit. Um, you know, there's organisations that will throw all this new, exciting, flashy technology equipment out and people will just buy it and go, look, now we're this technology school, we've got all this new cool stuff. But then it's like, well, the teachers don't know how to use it. There's no training provided. You know, all of that sort of stuff becomes a bit of a, you know, a white elephant. But I would probably more make do a lot of my own research first. Um, if I have an opportunity to loan equipment before I buy it, I normally do that. Um, there are enough competing organisations out there now um, wanting your business that I think that they would lend some equipment out to, to see if you like it. So I normally do that and then it's go, look, I don't know if I'm going to buy it yet because I don't know if the kids like it and if I'm going to get value out of it. So I kind of do roll in with the kids and what I actually do is just go, hey, guys, I've got this new stuff. Um, let's give it a go. And I want you to be really honest with me whether you think it's going to be valuable or not. And uh, and then at the end of that, they go, yeah, you know, this was really good. I learned this, this, this. Or no, like I didn't really get much value out of it. So I'll do a bit of that first and a bit of research before I dive into anything because there are, I can see, 
you know, a lot of those questions raised is, you know, well, why do I need this when this is kind of already really good um, and I'm already teaching these concepts really well? What do I need this If it ain't broke, don't fix it type thinking. That's right. That's right. So, and look, there are a lot of, in saying that, there are a lot of nice, free and cheap ways to access uh, or get students exposed to new and, you know, evolving technologies as well. You don't have to have this flashy equipment. So, what's a good um, what's a good example of that, or what's something that you've seen? Um, well, I don't know if I can use uh, names of products or not. On, no, on just here, speak but, generically um, then. If it's yeah, oh, you so, can I mean, if you like, want. so a lot of the a lot of the robotics equipment that you can buy from some of the big providers also offer virtual platforms in terms of, of where you can do exactly the same thing in a virtual environment. So it's the same robot. It's the same software. It's just, you know, it's the same coding. It just uh, the output is just a little virtual robot moving around the screen rather than being the physical one. That doesn't cost anything. So, you know, that's the advice to a lot of teachers that I give that are kind of like, well, look, this is all sounds really cool, but we just, you know, we don't have the funding for this. You know, we can't go buy all these robots um, or drones or whatever. But there are a lot of really good examples like that where the kids can get the same value. And it might be, for example, a, a teacher that brought this up recently. I said, well, just buy one robot. And what can happen is the students can use this virtual platform. And then once they get that working, they can try it out on the one robot. So everyone's still getting exposure to it um, that way. So, And then what about that, uh, the idea that you, you kind of spoke on this a little bit early earlier, um, this idea of, you're sort of almost a co-learner with the students. You're kind of you. You're very upfront about, or you seem very upfront about uh, acknowledging to the group. I don't know all of this territory. We're going to find Ooh. out together. What yep. do you say when? Because I can well imagine some teachers might say, "Oh, no, that's just a really inappropriate um, approach to take," and I yep. will not be doing that. But yeah, yeah. So what sort of <laughs> I say with a chuckle myself, but what what do you yeah. say to those colleagues? Um, I don't know. Like the 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 classic, you know, YOLO. Really, like just just jump in and give it a go. But I mean, I guess everyone's a little bit different in terms of the way that they teach, and there's no right or wrong way. And then also different subject areas. Um, might find that approach a bit easier as well. But I don't think there is any harm in being vulnerable as a teacher and admitting that you don't know everything. I think as soon as you do that with students, it kind of breaks down a bit of a wall. I found them to be a lot more, oh, okay, yeah, like that's that's just human nature. Like not everyone knows everything um, and maybe I can just give things a bit more of a go. That's what I've kind of noticed anyway, but... I completely respect that that's not not for everyone, and that um and that you know some teachers don't like to let that guard down. Um, but it is, I mean, you look at any profession um, outside of teaching, and you look at a leadership position, a leader that to his own work colleagues acts in the same way. That does get the respect of the the work colleagues. So I kind of uh, look at it in the same light. Um. And then what? Something else I've been thinking, and you you did speak on this a little bit earlier, but I I really liked the um the more of the human aspect of within all this technology, the robots and the software and the yeah. programming. There seemed to be this almost like a resurgence or or an emerging the human the interactions between students, group work, mm. communication. What um what are some of those whether you call them transferable skills, generic skills, yeah, those sort of elements? What what's going on there? We're on a learning and teaching level within all this technology. Yeah, I mean they kind of come down to the other word is probably the soft skills. Really, um, I kind of say to the kids like if you can teach a computer something, um, then you know AI is almost going to replace it. So. You know, there's a lot of things where artificial intelligence will come in and take over. Um, but when you do a lot of reading and research into it, it is a lot of the real human elements will remain. Um, and, you know, I think things like, you know, the collaboration and creativity and 
um, you know, critical thinking and all problem solving and all of those sorts of things are really important and, and actually transferable across a lot of subject areas, not just design and technology. Um, but I think being, yeah, working in collabor- like collaboration with other students um, and developing those communication skills I find really important. Um, and just that whole management side of things, you know, you've got a project, we, you know, very project-based learning type subject area, um, you know, project might run over a term. So there is a lot of management from the students, particularly within their team to kind of keep that project ticking over, um, which is a skill in itself, uh, you know, compared to maybe some other subjects where it's a little bit more structured. Um, some, not all students find that as easy as you would think, kind of going, well, here's a broader project and you're going to have to kind of work together and manage your time here um, to get the outcome that you want. So that is a challenge in itself, but it is a skill that I think we can both agree that can be transferred, you know, almost anywhere once you leave school. And so what sort of, like, what sort of scaffolding or support, like, because sometimes that's a criticism of these project-based approaches where, um, so how do you use guidance or scaffolding to just make sure that they're on track yeah look i mean the the project-based learning in a design and technology subject area very much moves through a couple of core steps so you got the you know the investigation component where you know you get the brief and maybe you're investigating what it's all about you've got a designing element where you're coming up with ideas creation type um, element of it where you're making the stuff and then there's like a testing or evaluation stage at the end. Overall, that is the project, um, but I would scaffold it down into, I guess, five smaller steps uh, with checkpoints along the way. Um, so, okay, the investigation should be done, um, and this is a checkpoint here. What I've found works quite well, though, is at those checkpoints, say, all right, next lesson we have, we're at checkpoint one, investigation, you're going to team up with another group and you're going to share your investigation with the other group and see what they found out, what their idea is, you know, give them some feedback and, and those sorts of things. That sort of brings in some accountability. Um, but it also means that, hey, if you haven't got it all done, you get an opportunity to listen to another group and kind of hear what they have done and then go back to your groups and, uh, and rework it a little bit. So there'd be feedback um, points along the way which they would have an opportunity to do. And then at the end, there's probably like a, a regrade or a grade at the end um, that worked that way. So kind of scaffolded down into into smaller parts like that. The the big thing for me at the moment is is what's what the next big thing is with education or technology. And it's really around um, around Web3. And I don't know if you're familiar with what Web3 is. I am, um, but our viewers or our audience may not be. What is Web3? What is this thing called Web3? Yeah, look, um, it is I'll, – I'll try and explain it um, as simply as I can. So first of all, you had Web1. So Web1, um, I guess, was like the first generation of the internet. So the first generation of the internet was very much created to have static web pages for of content. So you just go visit the the web page. There would be no interaction. You'd access the internet. That's how it worked. Web two came along, um, and what that was it was basically, I guess, where there was a greater adoption of, of mobiles, um, higher internet speeds. Sort of saw the emergence of social media, um, and you know, the, changed the way that we interact with the internet. So the internet was now a bit more of a two-way street where we would have these social media accounts or be communicating with other people on the internet, you know, through Facebook and all those sorts of things. So it moved from a static read-only to like a read and write web two, which is kind of um, where we are now. But the, the flip side of that is it kind of created these large organisations like Google and Amazon that now have all of our information and all of our data so as much as the Web2 did allow that, you know, our communication with each other, it also a big data collection of all our privacy, um, you know, privacy information and so forth. So what Web3 is, um, is kind of, I guess, shifting away from 
big organisations like Facebook and Google owning our information and more towards, I guess, us owning our internet identity, if that makes any sense. So basically, um, you know, we own, if you were to release a research paper or, or anything like that on the internet, um, it's basically about having ownership of that. Or if your Facebook profile, for example, you would have absolute ownership of that and the data that relates to it. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be Facebook's ownership. So it's a very abstract concept, um, but that's kind of, I guess, where it's moving is it's moving to a world of digital ownership, I guess. Um, what does that mean for education? I think one of the biggest things um, that it talks about is things like, um, you know, certifications and credentials and things like that. So you'd probably be familiar with uh, micro-credentialing and, and things like that. So um, it, putting that on a blockchain, uh, which I guess is like a verified credential site. So you have ownership of that particular digital asset. Um, I mean, I look at, my doing my teacher's registration, for example, my teacher's registration, I needed to um, manually enter all of my professional development. I needed to print off that document. I needed to take it to a justice of peace to get it stamped and certified. Then I needed to post that off to the teacher's registration board. And then they sent me a, a printed out paper certificate that I then store away somewhere in a file. So this is kind of moving more towards having a uh, a credential that is verified on chain um, that kind of skips all of those steps. Um, and there is an example, like I think in India, where a um, a big organisation, uh, you know, what was it? the area of India had half the population size was half the size of the US, I think, um, and they went down this path with doing the you know the online credentials and so forth. And I think they you know, transcript processing, they sort of had a thousand less people by going through this more efficient process. So that's one example, I guess, of where it could go. And then you think, well, where does that kind of fit into a school environment with reporting and all of these sorts of things? Um, but, yeah, that's probably an area that I'll try to explore a little bit more of um, in the coming years. I think it's going to be, if you look at technology in general and the progression and you look at, you know, the jump from web one to web two is this natural progression, you know, um, to web three, where you also hear terms like metaverse and, and things like this, this new digital environment. There's often a saying that, you know, we should prepare our students for a world that doesn't exist yet. Um, and I think, you know, that is, is hard to predict what that world looks like. But I think through constantly evolving and changing some of the technologies that you expose them to, as well as incorporating a lot of these soft skills um, into your learning, I think is the best uh, best we can do to really prepare our students for a future that you know none of us really know about yet. In this episode, I chatted with Tom Oliphant, a teacher and industrial designer. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.